Health and Fitness with David Hollywood with the all-new Midlands Park Health and Fitness Club. MidlandsParkHotel.com Midlands 103 Hello, welcome to this week's Health and Fitness. On the first show of February, you'll meet the man behind one of the fastest men in the world. Alex Albon competes against the best drivers in the world in the fastest cars on the planet. His performance coach is a leashman who'll be joining us very shortly. We speak to a Westmead psychotherapist who's gravely concerned about what effects the internet is having on future generations. And we explore the unique world of bodybuilding a little later. Now, have you ever wondered what it takes to perform at the highest level? And I don't mean just the elite level I'm talking about at the very last few decimal points of the very 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 best that is the world that Patrick Harding is from a leash man but a performance coach uh, working uh, predominantly in Formula 1 at the moment uh, Alex Albon is uh, the driver that you'll see him often standing beside as Alex prepares to get into the car for qualifying and race weekends over the course of the Formula 1 championship season uh, Patrick is on health and fitness with us this evening and um, Preparations for the new Formula One season, I imagine, are in full swing. Patrick, uh, catch us up on how and you and Alex are getting on in that respect. Hey, David, uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so we we finished the season last week in November, first weekend in December, and we we take about three and a half weeks where Alex can kind of go and enjoy himself, and, and I can catch up on myself. But first of January, we start back with our preseason and. and Traditionally, what we've done over the last few years is we go away for a couple of weeks just to have some dedicated time to training that is kind of away from all the distractions that home life can bring. And and certainly for Alex, when he's in Europe, there's a lot more in terms of commitments with the factory and with media and partnerships. So we we disappear off to LA for two weeks um, each January. Um, And it might sound glamorous, but, but actually it's the really tough two weeks of lots of training, lots of accumulation of volume. It's, you know, we probably get two or three weeks a year, maybe four, where we can truly dedicate ourselves to physical preparation. Uh, everything else we compromise with with all of the commitments that he's got. So for us, it's a really key part of our physical preparation to have those two weeks in, in LA or somewhere where we know we're a little bit isolated from the world. So yeah, we've got two really solid weeks done in LA. He did one extra week himself. Um, and then he's he's back in the UK and Europe right now doing a lot of factory work, a lot of partnership work, a lot of media work. I've just done a session with him there this morning. Um, so now it's just topping his fitness up a little bit in, in between those gaps of all those commitments that we just mentioned. And we've got another mini training camp in Monaco in two weeks time and that'll top him up ready for Bahrain in, in four weeks time. How frequent, it just uh, occurs to me as you say it there, how often do you guys uh, deal remotely because he has so many obligations um, and the nature of the sport is so global that I, you know, you're know you not always together um, and outside of these camps and race weekends there must be a bit of remote, remote programming and coaching that goes on. Absolutely. So um, obviously the, the more his profile grows and you know the more he's viewed within that world the less time we kind of have face to face. And that's why I said kind of those two weeks in January are, are gold dust to us really. Um, and then it just really depends on schedule. So, so like I said, you know, he's had two marketing days, uh, Monday and Tuesday this week, he got marketing this afternoon. So I'll pop into London, see him. He'll go back to Monaco for a few days. Um, we have a, he's doing a little bit of karting just to, to top up some of his driving and he'll do that himself. Um, and then next week we'll do a couple of sessions here and there when he's in the UK. But honestly, you know, it, it can be at, 
an hour's notice um, if he's in London and he's got some time and energy. Outside of that, obviously, we, we have a really well-structured training program um, online that he follows and he reports into me on. And I have visuals over everything that he does in terms of what he's doing, how his body responds, um, his general wellness and well-being, his, his sleep and recovery. Um, so, you know, the technology that we've got now, even though we're not face-to-face, um, I can keep a really good eye on everything that he's doing and, and track all his movements and, and track all his training responses and and how his general physiology is. Plus, we're six years in now, right? So how his body adapts to the sessions that we put on and and where his body needs to be in terms of that first test in Bahrain and that first race in Bahrain. We've got a really good understanding of what are the key benchmarkers of his fitness that let us know that he's in that place. Mm. So we we can work towards that, be really specific about what we do. And when we're not quite there yet, we can we can really drill down into those little areas that we need to top up. So while, like you said, it, it is a lot more remote than it used to be, um, we certainly have a better understanding of what he needs to be in that place to be um, as physically fit as he as he has to be to be able to compete in the car. And with that, we can be really detailed in how we get him there. So, you know, we might have less time, but we're exponentially more efficient than we used to be. And, and I think that's not a bad thing, right? Um, mm. Understanding him and being so detailed that there's no waste of time in, in how we apply our our energy is is certainly a good thing for him, especially across such a busy season. Looking from the outside, Patrick, I've observed Alex looks more and more, I suppose, muscular for want of a better description. And I notice this with drivers. It's not very pronounced. Obviously, they don't want to be carrying more and more weight into the car. But from his rookie year uh, to now, I presume there's a, an effect of building on what you built on the year previous when it comes to uh, certain parts of the body and, and certain strengths. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, he when we started working together, we, we talk about a, a, an athlete's training age. Um, and that's not their chronological age. That That's the length of exposure they've had to structured training, right? So either in the sub-elite or the elite environment. And, and when I started working with Alex, I would say his training age was relatively low, even though he was 21. Um, and now we're six years in, he's had six years of, of really structured, consistent loading. So his body will adapt quicker um, and he's more resilient and his tissue is more resilient and he does build muscle mass a lot easier. But certainly one of our main focuses in January and February is to put three or four kilos of muscle mass on him. Um, he's the tallest driver on the grid. He's he's lean. Um but he needs mass because he loses weight across the season, especially when we get into some, some of those hotter races where the physiological load is a lot higher. Um, and you know, if we can put three or four kilos of mass on him, we know that we can try and maintain that a little bit better across the season. Uh, it is a weight restricted sport. So he has to be under 80 kilos with his race suit helmet and, and seat. So we are conscious of his weight, but certainly we have a window of three or four kilos where we certainly try and put more mass on him. And absolutely, like he said, you know, if we, you know, if I, I went and looked at his data from year one and, and his data from January, when we, we did our testing and looking at his body comps and his, his muscle girths and, and certainly his strength markers, he, he's exponentially more developed now than he was six years ago. Uh, and like I said, that's, that's partly due to his physiological adaptation and then partly due to the consistency of training and, you know, also down to now his professional behaviours and I think what you see with a lot of these younger drivers now and certainly when you look at lower categories they view themselves as athletes and, and with that their physical preparation becomes a key component of that and, and I think he 
generally with that see a change in the physique of these drivers uh, with respect to the level of training input that they, they take on board these days. When we return to our conversation with Patrick, you'll hear about a race that was so difficult that the majority of the grid were violently ill while driving at 200 miles per hour. Health and fitness with the only Midlands Park Health and Fitness Club with fitness classes to suit everyone. Experience the warmth at 30 degrees in our dedicated spin studio. Discover all this and more on MidlandsParkHotel.com. Midlands Williams F1 performance coach Leash's Patrick Harding is on health and fitness. He helps prepare the best athletes in the world for the most difficult tests in sport. One such test was the Qatar Grand Prix last year. The F1 grid was hit with widespread heat stroke in the midst of the Grand Prix. Patrick's work is all about preparing Alex Albon for these conditions. You know, reflecting on Qatar, you know, it was the perfect storm. Um, and even across that race weekend, I think if you spoke to any of the, the coaches across the grid, there was growing concern about um, how physical the race was going to be. And, you know, it was humid, it was hot. You know, those first couple of days there, you know, it definitely took us some time to, to acclimatise. We we went and we ran the track as part of that acclimatisation. And we do heat chamber work before we get to races like that to try and accommodate his body a little bit to the heat and the humidity. And generally, he's really good in heat and humidity. We we never worry, you know, Singapore, we did that a couple of weeks before that and absolutely fine. And that's a really good benchmarker for us. But Sunday just was incredibly hot. It had jumped temperature-wise to, to a point that we weren't expecting. Humidity was really high. Again, we weren't expecting. And then we had the issue across the weekend with the Pirelli tyres and the FIA being concerned about the integrity of the tyres and then deciding that it was a mandatory tree stop. Now, the, the issue with that is none of the drivers need to worry about tyre management. So when you're in a race and you don't have to worry about tyre management, pretty much every lap is like a quality lap. It's all out, all out physically, all out speed. And what you get with that is obviously massively increased G-forces on the body and obviously with that bigger physical load. So you, you have the combination of the tyre strategy being a mandatory tree stop, the jump in temp, the jump in humidity, and then the increased physical load and you know, we're talking about we went into that race with, you know, 800 mils of fluid on board in terms of what Alex could drink through that period. Um, you know, we we as coaches go down to the FIA garage, drivers get officially weighed after each race and you meet them in the garage. And I've never seen a, an FIA garage like that in terms of how each of those drivers had responded to that race. Um, and for sure, I would wholly expect that the FIA and F1 are looking at that race in terms of, that level of exposure on these guys and the safety of that. And that has to be a real consideration. Um, I would have no fears of Alex in any conditions, in any car generally. And that's the worst I've ever seen him in terms of his physical response to a race. Um, And when he gets to that level, then I know for sure the environment is unusual. Um, uh, So yeah, certainly it was, like I said, a perfect storm and not one that I would want to repeat in a hurry. No, it was a bit disconcerting and even Alex's teammate Logan Sargent um, was a, a DNF as a consequence of the conditions that plenty of the drivers um, getting sick inside their helmets has sounded horrendous to be fair. Um, let's move things slightly back to yourself Patrick before we finish up this evening uh, and that's uh, talking about what you got up to in the off-season. I know the off-season in Formula 1 is basically the opposite like you guys get busier as soon as the racing stops in preparation for the next year uh, but you've also been hitting the books as well. Yeah, yeah. 
I'm a glutton for punishments. Um, so I'm, I'm currently doing a professional doctorate uh, through Dublin City University, actually, in, in elite sports performance. Um, so December was an opportunity for me to catch up on a couple of assignments that maybe were, were, were put on the shelf for a couple of weeks, um, get my head into into the books a little bit and and start developing a little bit more around my first two research studies, which are, which are just about starting now. So, yeah, it, it, while it was off season, it wasn't necessarily off for me, but but very often, you know, just changing the headspace uh, can refresh. So, you know, we weren't traveling, it wasn't jumping across time zones and it wasn't that race weekend. So, you know, being in one place and dedicating some time to some of that more mental development stuff. And, you know, I've always enjoyed the, the structure of education. Um, so, so for me, getting my team into something a little bit different was actually a bit of a refresher in itself, but yeah, it, it didn't mean for many days off, but uh, certainly it was, it was nice to be in one place. And, you know, when you're studying a topic that you're interested in um, and, and has a direct influence on your environment, then, you know, it, it feels like it's just, part of what you need to do to to stay in this environment and be effective and impactful in this environment so yeah well well some people might think i'm a little bit crazy i'm actually really enjoying the process learning is nourishing I think as they say uh, final question then uh, you've obviously been working closely within and with the Williams team in recent years and it, it looks like you'll be embedded there strategically a bit more in the future uh, you're going to be taking a look and responsibility over uh, their young driver programme which is an extensive one that uh, descends through multiple championships yeah absolutely so so as of next year I'll be the academy performance lead for for Williams Racing and and what that looks like is next year we currently have two drivers in Formula 2 uh, one in Formula 3 a female driver in the new Formula Academy series Uh, we've got a young driver in Freca which is that transition between karting and and single seaters um, like F4 F4 regional and then we've got somebody in, in karting as well so right through the spectrum of development in terms of if I'm a young kid and I, my dream is to get the Formula One pretty much looking after the, and having responsibility for the physical preparation of all of those drivers, not directly, but but putting the performance structure in place, including the, their performance coaches, um, sports psychology, medical services, performance nutrition, uh, technical support through engineering, and then, yeah, helping to support those coaches and that, that performance structure in terms of how we develop these young drivers, not just technically in terms of through the category, but but as individuals. And like we talked about before, you know, these drivers viewing themselves as athletes. How do we put these performance behaviors in place? The younger we get them, um, hopefully the more established those behaviors become so that when they do, be, you know, get that little bit closer to the big time that as many of those behaviors are already in place and, and they have much more time and energy to focus on the technical development and understanding the environment as opposed to upskilling on the physical or the preparation or the recovery or the importance of traveling well, et cetera. So yeah, really exciting project and ties in nicely with, with my doctorate in terms of what I'm looking at, which is long-term uh, talent development and talent identification and, and career trajectory and looking at the environments that we put these young athletes in and how that um, informs their, their development, but also you know, how that influences whether they're successful or not in those environments and what success really looks like, right? So, um, yeah, so so it seemed like a really nice fit with the doctorate. Um, not quite sure how many hours there are in a week, but but certainly I'm, I'm going to be spinning a few plates next year. But, 
you know, these are all decisions that I've made and, and I've stepped into with my eyes open. And it's, you know, when you're passionate about what you do, um, it's hard to say no to opportunities like that when they come along. Yeah, it sounds like a fantastic project to be involved in that specific thing. And uh, obviously, we'll be watching with a keen eye how yourself and Alex get on through the season. A big season probably for Alex in terms of the future and uh, a big season for Williams as well. So the best of luck with all of that, Patrick. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us on Health and Fitness. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me on. Next on Health and Fitness, does the globalised and online world pose an existential threat to future generations? We start answering that question next. Health and fitness with the all-new Midlands Park Health and Fitness Club where relaxation meets rejuvenation. Find out more at midlandsparkhotel.com Our world is so much more connected than it ever was before in certain ways, in many ways. Obviously, we live in a globalised planet. We have social media. The internet keeps us uh, very aware of each other's existence in certain ways. And uh, certainly there's questions to be asked about what effects that may have. Today on Health and Fitness, we're focusing in on a specific, which is mental health or mental ill health, and it's platforming on the social media platforms and what that might do for a generation that has grown up uh, with both these platforms and these algorithms, let's say. I'm very glad to say that joining me on Health and Fitness this evening is Rory Hafford, a psychotherapist and author based in Westmeath. Uh, Rory, thanks very much for joining us on the programme. Hi, David. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Rory, you heard my introduction there. Social media has its supporters and its detractors, uh, but we're looking at a very specific issue, and that is um, how mental health issues are represented on their platforms and what that might do for people who are developing uh, as they go through, let's say, their adolescence and their early adulthood. Um, What's your perspective on, on the basic point of this question? Yeah, this 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 is a very uh, this this topic is very close to my heart because as as a psychotherapist, I will see the fallout from this as opposed to the the, the positives. So, for the past two two and a half years, I've been conducting in the margins uh, a kind of a, a study on on what I find with people who come into me, and I'm looking for a pattern in that and what i have found david is is for me being being a, a, a more mature man of a certain age is terrifying so i'll, I'll go through the little bullet points with you and sure. you, you, can, you can stop off at, at various junctures and if you want to know more about them but it's it's firstly <laughs> we have we have at some point turned into a nation of fault finders. And I do put it down to a great degree to the the airbrushing of life that we see online. Mm. You know, people are not going to post, you know, photographs of themselves just waking up or or, or the stuff that they have failed at. They they post their successes and they post pictures when they're all, you know, dolled up to the nines and all the rest of it. So there is this airbrushing of life, which leads to a kind of a fault-finding thing, a finger-pointing, uh, a blame-focused society that we have now. So it's very, very difficult uh, to get a compliment off somebody. You will always hear the, the, the term, yeah, but. Now, yeah, but is the language of the fault-finder, pure and simple. So, and this is, this is what I hear 
uh, more often than not, particularly in the clinic. The, the, other, the other thing as well that, that I found, David, is, is rudeness and aggression. And the rudeness is starting at a very, very early age. So you're talking about teenagers, you know, 13, 14, 15 in particular. Extreme, the, the kids who come to see me, extremely rude and extremely opinionated. Hmm. So remember, and, and no, no, no thought or no concern for the fact that, that I've studied all my life or psychotherapists study all their lives and are qualified out the gate. That's almost an irrelevance. It's what they know. It's what they believe. It's all about them. Because the online world is very focused on you, what you can have, what you are, all that kind of stuff. So that negates other people. Let's nope. let's dwell on two things you mentioned there: the the the, the rudeness and uh, and then the conviction that you know less than they do. Um, yeah. In terms of the rudeness, which I think maybe it, you could argue is is a less imminently threatening issue. Is do you think that's down to? A, a, underdeveloped social skills could because people's worlds have migrated out of the real tactile worlds and, and online instead? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And remember there, there is no there is no threat from the device in your hand. Yeah. But if you if you have to connect, form some sort of a connection with another human being, that's a more threatening world for these kids growing up. The the device in your hand means that you have full control over what it is that you do in that. But here's the, here's, here's the thing, David, and you yourself have said it, the world, this world and, and the world that we're making. This is not the real world. Hmm. The online world is, is not real. And I have, I have kids coming into me saying, well, I don't understand. I have, I have, you know, 265 friends. No, you don't. You have 265 pieces of data on a screen in front of you. That's not, a, that's not real. There's no connection. There is a huge disconnect as a result of that, which also leads into loneliness. And that, loneliness... Has, Roy, that must be difficult to permeate because reality for everyone, whatever way you look at it, is defined by the subjective interpretation. So their real friends, their real world is exactly this disassociative place called the internet. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Your mind creates your reality, but it is also affected by the stuff that you put into your mind. Hmm. So th- th- this is not, you know, something, oh, we've just come across. Everybody makes a choice to switch their phone on. And everybody makes a choice to I- immerse themselves in that phone. I mean, I, I was looking at a, at a, at a w- I- looking out the window in, from the clinic and, and I saw this woman on her phone. Now, she's not talking on it. She's t- looking at it, looking at the screen. And she comes and she knows that she has to stop. Something in her tells her she has to stop at the traffic lights. But she doesn't and keeps walking and there's cars coming to her. Now, What's going through her mind? What's going through her mind is the online world is is my world. This is the real world. Not the world of other people and other things. This online world. And this is getting this this is not a teenager. This is a woman in her twenties or thirties. So it's now migrating with people. It's 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 growing up with people that they feel that the online world is the real one. So th- this is this this for me is is absolutely terrifying. And the other thing as well is, is in this world, people are pictures 
They're not real people. I have one of my particular bugbears is people looking at me, just looking at me and not acknowledging me. Now, okay. when I grew up, when I grew up, that was, that was considered an act of aggression. If somebody just looks at you and doesn't say anything. Now, on, on reflection, what the kids are doing and, 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 and the, 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 the older teens and the, and the 20-somethings, are, they're looking at you, but not as a person. They are looking at you as a picture because that's what they do all day from the moment they open their eyes. They look at their screen. It's a two-dimensional reality, them and their screen. Yeah. But, but the real world is three-dimensional. There's, picture, there's people in there as well. You are aware that there are other people in the world, right? And most people, most of these kids, they're aware of it, but they attach little importance to it. Uh, the, the, the other thing as well, David, David, with this is I was driving literally from the village of four into Oldcastle one morning and there's little knots, little connections of, of school kids waiting for the bus to come sure. at various points along the route. Now, they are all on their phones, all of them, even though they are in knots of, 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 of themselves. They are all on their phones. So there is a disconnect straight away there. But the thing that struck me is that there wasn't one happy expression. And this is what I also find with people on their phones. They rarely look happy. Now, that's, that's telling. Yeah. Whereas if you're walking down the street with a group of your friends and you're talking and you're joking and you're laughing, you are, by association, happy. So happiness is the other thing that has been, has, has been a, a casualty. Have you seen that presenting more often in your line of work than in, in, in young people that you see that there is in your professional experience, a tangible decline in, in happiness? 100%. 100%. And, they, and, and by every definition of, of, of measuring that, I have found 100%. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you the small antidote to that, David, and, and, and it, it, it fed into my studies, certainly. Do, so I live, in, I live in an isolated area. So there's a lot of fields, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of forests, there's a lot of green, there's a lot of animals. We are festooned in badgers and, and foxes <laughs> and, and cats. And so there's a lot of movement, there's a lot of, there's a lot of tangible movement that you can actually connect to. So on occasion, maybe three or four times a year, I will bring uh, a few people up to where my house is hmm. and we will do say for a weekend maybe two three days we will get rid of everything all gadgets all phones all the all the stuff now this is not rocket science this is just normal stuff and what it is is it's going back it's going back maybe a hundred years so we cook our own food we organize our own entertainment we paint for those who can't paint we write poetry we do talking. We actually sit and talk to each other. We do a lot of exercise. Exercise. There's, there's walks in the forest. Walks in the forest are just, just incredible for your mental health. Incredible. It's called forest bathing. Yeah. And it just brings you to a new, a new space, a new energy, a new dynamic. We, we kayak. We walk the roads. 
We cook our own food. And you're doing this we with young people. Um, right. do you you f- know, with, with people. With people of, of, of varying, varying ages. So, do you find there's a reticence initially and then, and then the, the benefits of the environment you're describing kick in over the course of hours and days? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and there, is, there is a hesitancy there, absolutely, because this is not the world that they are used to. This is not the world that their mind has created. This is somebody else's world. This is an old world. Uh, and at the end of, of, of the two or three days, we, we, we talk on a deeper level about how they found the experience of no television, no phones, doing their own cooking and being surrounded by other people. And their happiness, their happiness levels are, are off the scale better than when they arrived, off the scale. Now remember as well, I, I do this on a humanistic level, David, so this is people talking to people. This is not some, some crusty academic sitting around a table and measuring how the world is on a piece of paper. This is the real world, the world of people connecting with people the way it used to be. Now, people listening to this may be falling over chairs to get to the phone to say, yeah, but the world has moved on. Certainly it has. In my opinion, it's moved on for, not for the better. But we still have access to the older values in life, which bring, as far as I can measure and as far as I can see, a lot more happiness than this, this, this abject disconnect of living your life online on, on a mobile phone or on a device. Okay. Let's and I am, I, it's, it's, going to take, it's going to take a generation, David. It's going to take a generation before the full impact and the full fallout from this is 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 evident. No, I I, I can believe that. Um, and based on what you're saying there, it leads me to a final question, Rory, and, and that is uh, from a health provision perspective, from a professional perspective, if we've identified a potential solution to the current ailment, which in this sense uh, seems to be developing a way to disconnect uh, from the internet from uh, the the online world as opposed to the world we physically occupy uh, how do you think that could or should manifest in terms of policy oh duh, david now don't, don't talk <laughs> to me don't talk to me about policy because now you're bringing me into the world of politics and politicians i know and but we it, need this needs to come from the top down to to genu- genuinely be effective yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it actually does. Now I'm going to sound like a crusty alpha when, when, when I give you my, my version of the answer. Okay, for the, for the longest time, for, for the past 30, 40 years, I have been listening to politicians, largely the same ones, and largely saying the same things. Okay, we're going to do this for you, we're going to do that. And everything has gotten worse. Everything's worse, listening to them. Every single aspect, housing, health, banks, uh, legal profession, they're, they're all in, in, they lie in ribbons. But here's the thing with this. If you're looking for somebody to make a policy decision, it will be made, this is what I've learned over the years, it will be made guided by one thing. One thing, you ready for this? Money. If you are confused as to the direction that stuff is taking, and you can't, it doesn't make sense to you. And in this case, this online world, this doesn't make sense to me. Follow the money. Get their money. That's government policy, as far as I have observed over the last 40, 50 years. Get their money. Follow the money. Now, David, you don't need me to tell you the vast amounts 
of cash that are, are, are taken in through the online world, mm. through devices, through contracts, through signing up for companies, through taxes. It is, it is a huge money-raking exercise for government. So what, what you really should have said to me is when we get people in government, politicians who, who look... Who, who look to do what it is in theory they are elected for, to look after the people. Maybe then we have a group of people who will sit down and make the right decisions for the right reasons. But I can see, as far as I can see, Ireland is, is powered by greed, powered by it. So this is always going to be at the, at the top of the agenda. How can we get the money? And once we have that, Nothing will change. We are social animals by nature, David. We are born to be together. It pulses through us. And this modern-day online addiction is pulling us the other way, pulling us to bits and pieces. Okay, so maybe uh, the uh, solution uh, to the ailment is to attack the concept of, of greed in this country. That's a whole other interview, I think, Rory. Uh, but That's a ho- yeah, yeah, your whole, I, th- I think the solution to this is for people to see that they are in the grip of something that has control over them. It is like any other addiction. And then to make a choice. Because everything can be taken from us except our ability to choose. So we have to make a choice. We can't wait for, you know, Leo and the boys to sit there and tell us, you know, how we should live our lives. We have to make that. This is, you get one life. You get one spin around the scorching sun. And you have to choose what you're going to do with that journey. Yeah. And being addicted to an online device where everybody else in the world except yourself tells you how to live is not good, in my opinion. Rory, it's been a pleasure having you on Health and Fitness this evening. Thanks for taking the time and uh, we look forward to catching up with you again. Thanks, David. Have you ever looked at the bodybuilder world with amazement and confusion? I certainly have. A man from Rochford Bridge is about to demystify a world of pectoral definition and nutritional obsession. Health and fitness with the newly refurbished Midlands Park Health and Fitness Club. Refresh your fitness journey with dedicated personal trainers on hand to help you achieve your goals. Find out more at midlandsparkhotel.com. Here on Health and Fitness, we're moving on to a sport and a competition that I think many of us will recognise, but few of us will understand the physical, uh, emotional, uh, psychological mechanics of it. And that is the world of uh, bodybuilding. I'm very glad to say that uh, a Midlands man from Rochford Bridge is about to join us on the programme who's competed at national level in bodybuilding. Uh, Kyle Decores, you're very welcome to Health and Fitness this evening. Well, David, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Not at all. Uh, delighted to have you on the programme. Talk us through your experience in the bodybuilding world at the moment in the last uh, number of years. Um, so essentially what got me into bodybuilding at the start was kind of just like a desire for competition. Like the sport in itself at times can kind of be isolated. Obviously it doesn't have that same level of um, sociability that other sports like obviously GAA or football would have. So essentially what got me into bodybuilding at the start would have been like that social aspect of competing on stage. But essentially what bodybuilding is, is obviously taking the performance in the gym, taking the ability you're able to build yourself up into the gym in terms of your physique and basically presenting it on stage um, against other competitors who have obviously the similar mindset um, and obviously have similar physiques to bring to the stage. But basically what it is, is building the best version of yourself possible 
dying down to uh, minimum level of body fat to basically present that best physique on stage that you possibly can. Okay, and uh, in terms of your personal experience then, uh, you've competed at national level and uh, did relatively well as well. Um, yeah, so I would have took second place running up in 2018. 2019 um, competed at the men's physique, which would have been different from um, the bodybuilding criteria or the bodybuilding judging criteria, which I can touch on later. But then obviously COVID hit. I'll be looking to get back into the bodybuilding um, um, competing this year um, without a doubt. Okay, you've touched on a couple of interesting things already. So one of the things I wanted to uh, ask you is when you were kind of going through adolescence um, and that type of thing, was the gym somewhere that you were going regularly? Were you enjoying that aspect of like physical exercise? So what got me into the gym, um, I've been basically in the gym. Well, I'd say I'm in the gym since about 14 or 15. Okay. I would have started the physical exercise aspect of it from, I'd say about 12 or 13. I would have started off simple, literally. When I started off, it was like bare bones, bare basic, just simple ab exercises and runs throughout the week. And then kind of slowly built from there. Um, I think the first bit of equipment I bought was like a curl bar from Argus. For, I think it was like a 20 kilogram curl bar from Argus. And I do like these little workouts I devised myself. Um, sometimes out my backyard and in my room from 13 and then I would have been introduced to the gym uh, my mother had this cousin um, he was um, a rugby coach so the first time I was in the gym he would have brought me kind of ran me through this kind of like a rugby focused strength and conditioning kind of focused um, routine Yeah. and then after that I kind of just picked uh, picked apart different things he showed me and then built from there so I would have started going to the gym probably around 14 or 15 So from that point onwards um, you you were getting more and more in, into this world but to go all the way back to you showing the first interest in in bodybuilding or in, in that like um, maybe the repetitive element of, of, of lifting or whatever it was what do you think it was that appealed to you personally about that form of exercise? Um, I think it's just like for the gym I know myself definitely the mental health aspect is one big thing that I think is worth touching on um, like definitely the feeling um, you get when you're in the gym the feeling you get when out and then obviously the knock on effects that getting an overall sense of um, increases in fitness and general mental well-being okay. but um, for me personally like from, from the gym at 15 it is it can be repetitive in nature um, but then again if you have that end goal of either like which is why I got into bodybuilding um, in the first place of having that end goal to actually step on stage because at the start when you get in obviously you'll have your end goals of either trying to lose weight trying to improve your physical appearance or whatever other reason you're getting into for a start but after working out for a year or two years and you finally hit these goals it's kind of looking at it outside of that and seeing what else I can bring myself to or what else I can push myself for so that's why I signed myself up for the first bodybuilding competition at uh, 17 I think it was <laughs> and uh, certainly it's it's brought you to places already in that respect so talk us through uh, the kind of criteria that you do have to hit on if you're to perform well at a bodybuilding competition so essentially what the judging, tri- uh, the judging criteria in a bodybuilding competition is basically based on your overall size your definition which then comes down into diet and how well you prepare in terms of um, obviously losing the weight before stage and then you're based on your one minute posing and then you're posing compared to other competitors on stage but um, the criteria you're based on so you'll be based on symmetry so basically how well your body is evened out um, if your arms are the same size in comparison to your legs and what not the judges will look for um, little things in comparison to that Okay so it's very detailed in that respect um, how difficult is it and by that I mean 
how much strain do you put your body under to deliver the best, most well-judged body on the day? I think definitely the three or four month diet preparation leading up to the competition is definitely the hardest. So when you're when you're in a calorie or when you're in a caloric surplus throughout the year and your energy levels are high because you can eat what you want and you can eat as much as you want, it's a lot easier to hit the gym and hit the performance that you want to hit. But then obviously in the three or four months leading up to the competition, that's when your energy is going to be at an all-time low. So like I think in like the two or three weeks leading up to the competition, I was like within 2,000 calories, 1,800 calories. And at that point, it's hard to even get off the couch, let alone go to the gym and work out for an hour or do an hour of cardio. Okay. So I definitely think when you're pushing yourself to that level and your calories are that low, that is definitely the hardest of it. And like that being three or four months based on um, how quickly you want to lose the weight or how um, you space your diet out, that's definitely the hardest period of it. Okay, so the initial build-up is bulking up and then you get to a threshold point a few months out where you have to operate in calorie deficit but still maintain the physical workout regime. Yeah, so that's, if anything, when you're leading up to a show, your cardio is going to increase as your calories decrease, which is definitely the hardest part. I think definitely when it comes to diet, though, um, I think this is what I realised the first time I competed. I didn't realise how much of uh, a mental aspect it actually take a toll on. So, like, obviously, when your energy levels are that low, like, it really seriously affects your mood, which is one thing I wasn't expecting the first year going into it. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen that documentary, Super Size Me, and your man basically eats something by McDonald's for 30 days, mm. and then shows him in, like, the aftermath of switching from a diet that you can have full control over, eat whatever you want. Like, it touches on, like, that mental aspect of it. Um, once you're no longer able to eat what you wanted to eat, and then trying to cut off that weight at the very end, it's very, very, very difficult um, but then just sticking, like having the willpower to stick to it and the mental strain it takes on, that would probably be the hardest part of it, I'd say. You must therefore have a great admiration for those who perform and, and, and produce at the high, highest levels of the sport. Uh, without a doubt, yeah. After experiencing it myself and seeing how hard it is, especially in the last, in the week, in the prep week leading up to it, that's definitely the hardest part. So I definitely have respect for, like especially at the higher level, when you see pro athletes and the um, basically the level they're able to push their own physiques to it's, uh, it is quite amazing to be fair Anybody who's listening who finds what we're talking about appealing then um, how would you recommend that they go about get, learning more about this sport? So one of the biggest things for me I think I definitely think in the last in the last four or five years I think like the stigma and misconceptions around what working out entails and like I think like in the past, people have kind of looked at the gym as like a scary place full of big muscle heads that kind of intimidating. I think in the definitely in the last few years, I've definitely seen a shift away from that, especially with there's such, an, um, there's such a wide access to information now with Google, YouTube, another source of information where a simple Google search on literally as simple as um, week workout diet to follow will give you pages and pages of information. So for anyone to look, anyone looking to get into the gym starting off, I can see how personal trainers can be um, definitely as an assist if people have like the motivation aspect of it that they're struggling to stick to. But I think after an hour on Google, you could get a fully customized, tailored workout plan for free just from going through YouTube tutorials on how to work out what different machines in the gym do. And I think once you go into the gym with that little bit of information, um, the gym becomes less intimidating. Once you kind of know what to do when you're in there, but definitely like looking on Google or YouTube for information, um, before working out or just even finding a structured workout program to start off with from anywhere from the beginner to intermediate level um, the information is out there and it's out there for free and there is a lot of it Yeah there certainly is as you were saying earlier in our conversation your relationship with the gym started a long time ago and you touched on the fact that some people will have 
reservations about going, I suppose. But once you do get bedded into a gym and you're a member for a period of time, there must be a degree of camaraderie that gets struck up with regular members and, and, and a kind of a common support network. Definitely, even like even the, like even the nods you get walking in. Once you become familiar with the staff, like, it becomes a much more friendly place when you're going in. You're seeing familiar staff on shift. You have a nod, quick hello when you're going in the door. And then, obviously, if you're sticking to the gym for um, a consistent period and you're sticking to your days that you're going, you're going to run into people that are there, that their schedules will match up with yours. And um, like I know I said at the start, the gym can be an isolated sport, as it is only you're focused on your own training. But the longer you go and the more common... Um, you get to meet the people that are there you can build up friendships within the gym Yeah I think hopefully it carries as a truism for every sport it's one of the great mental health aspects of physical exercises that we do it uh, in community often and uh, bodybuilding no less even though it's in, in its expression an individual one uh, Final question then Kyle when do you think we might see you back in competition late this year early next year what's, what's the, the, the objective? Um, I definitely think um, so. The NBFI, um, which is the National Bodybuilding Federation of Ireland, which is the sport, which is the competition which I chose to compete in the last time. They're running again in September, so I'll hopefully get back um, this September. Okay, well, when it comes to that, we'll catch up with you on health and fitness. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us this evening. No worries, David. Thanks for having me. That's your lot for health and fitness this week. Joe Cooney and Country Roads is after the news at eight. Talk to you soon.